This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to Job chapter 33. And as you make your way to the 33rd chapter of Job, I just want to take some time to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was during our study last week, that's when we first were introduced to a young man named Elihu. And while we can't say for sure exactly when he showed up to the scene, uh, the introduction of his initial comments that we read last week, well, those comments seem to suggest that he had been there to witness the complete debate between Job and his three friends. Now, we also don't know, was he a peer or just a peon? We don't know. He, he, was he there as, as a peer or, or was he there to serve one of these three friends or, or was he a servant of Job? We don't really know what his position was in this group. But what we do know is that Elihu patiently waited as he listened to all of the allegations made against Job. And not only that, but he sat there silently as he listened to the way that Job then defended his own innocence. And, and then when Job wrapped up his final defense, that's when Elihu finally spoke up. It was in our study last week when we took the time to consider the beginning of Elihu's first speech. And I'll remind you that Elihu began with a word of rebuke. He began with a word of rebuke as he challenged Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And he challenged those three men about the way in which their words lacked the sage wisdom that ought to be spoken by those who are old. Not only that, but he also challenged them for failing to provide even one shred of evidence for all of the accusations that they lodged against their friend. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Elihu, he's shifting his attention from the unfounded accusations of Job's counselors and, and he's now beginning to focus on the complaints that Job had been making against the Lord throughout the time of his defense. And I'll remind you that Job was complaining about several things. He was complaining about his situation as he struggled to understand why the Lord was punishing him. And what he was failing to realize was that the Lord was not punishing him. This was not a punishment of the Lord. No, instead the Lord was allowing Job's faith to be put to the test. And it's here in our text tonight where we find Elihu now challenging Job's perspective. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Elihu's first speech, which is found here in Job chapter 33. I want you to look with me here beginning at verse 1. Here Elihu declares, Please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth. Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Elihu, he's assuring Job that he was using his tongue to speak. And that's, that's important information. It's good to know that he was using his tongue to speak because, speak because, you know, if you meet a person who's speaking, but they're not using their tongue, chances are, I'm just suggesting that it might be one of those lizard people that the YouTubers keep warning me about. I don't know why these videos pop up in the algorithm, but, you know, apparently there's lizard people out there, and I'm just wondering how they use their tongues when they speak, but now I'm completely off the rails. Elihu, listen, Elihu wasn't referring to the physical mechanics of oral motor skills. No, instead, he was respectfully informing his audience here that the words of his mouth were now being aimed at Job. That's the whole point here in the first two verses. He's shifting his focus from the three friends of Job to Job, and he's letting everybody know that's what's happening here. 
Elihu was doing his best to avoid confusion by presenting clear communication. And at the same time, he also wanted to assure his audience that his intentions were respectful and his motives for offering this word of rebuke was pure. And I want to consider how he puts it here in Job chapter 33. If you would look with me here beginning at verse 3. Here Elihu declares, My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me, take your stand. Truly I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Here in these verses we find Elihu, he's taking a moment to assure Job that there was no need for him to be defensive as he began to listen to uh, the point that Elihu was making. He's saying, hey, you don't have to be defensive about this. And, and remember, uh, you know, Job's already on the defensive here. You know, he's already on the defense, you know, especially after three rounds of debate that he had with his friends. And knowing that tempers were already running high here, Elihu was a wise, uh, you know, uh, he, was a, he was a wise man to de-escalate this situation before beginning to address Job's faulty perspective about the punishment that he thought he was receiving. Now, with this as the goal, we should notice here that Elihu first assures Job that his motives were respectful and spiritual and not carnal. And so he's just letting Job know up front, hey, look, my motives are, are, are pure. I'm not here to attack you. You don't need to be defensive. And after assuring Job about his motivations, Elihu went, uh, went on to also encourage Job to just you know, take the time to carefully consider his words and, and, and to think about how he might respond before responding. You know, a lot of times people don't think about their response. They just start responding, and, and, and he's saying, hey, before you jump in and try to respond, don't be defensive, and just think about the things that I'm saying here. In this way, Elihu was demonstrating his desire to hear Job's defense. He's, he's saying, hey, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, but only after taking the time to process all of the information. Finally, Elihu reminded Job that he was a mere mortal. He was made of clay like everyone else. And so he's basically saying, I'm no threat to you. You know, you don't have to be threatened by this because I'm no threat to you. I'm, I'm clay, I'm a human just like anybody else here. He also assured Job that his words wouldn't be harsh nor condemning. He's saying, hey, my hand's not going to be heavy against you. In this way, we can see how Elihu was preparing Job's heart so that he could receive this correction, even in, even in the midst of, of his suffering. Now, as we consider this approach, we must not fail to recognize the difference between the tone that Elihu took with Job and the tone that he took with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Two totally different approaches. I'll remind you, it was in our last chapter, it was last week in chapter 32, there we found Elihu beginning his speech with a fairly aggressive tone as he began to rebuke uh, these men who were Job's incorrect counselors, right? He, he, he wasn't very gentle with these guys. And, and one reason why is because they hadn't been gentle with Job. For example, it's there in Job 32, verse 9, there Elihu declares, Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. In other words, he's saying, hey, just because you're old doesn't mean you're smart. He's letting them know that just because they were old didn't mean that their words were wise, nor did it mean that their accusations were just. 
And in that way, he just drops the mic, says boom, roasted, and walks away. No, no, seriously, in verse 11 and 12, he goes on to declare this. He says, indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. In other words, Elihu was assuring Job's counselors that their counsel was both unreasonable and entirely unconvincing. Their arguments didn't have explanatory scope or power, and so he's just dissing these guys. And as we consider the harsh tone that Elihu took here when he rebuked Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I want to compare that approach to the gracious way that he's preparing Job's heart for his words of correction. And, and, he, and he's basically saying, hey, I'm not going to be heavy-handed. And, you know, I, I want you to just drop your defenses and just hear me out. And, and as we consider these two different approaches, I think that we would all do well to realize that there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to corrective counsel. You know, if, if you think that all corrective counsel must come with a soft tone, well, that's probably not the case. And if you think that, you know, corrective counsel must always be harsh, well, that's not the case either. To prove my point, I want to consider the different ways that Christ Jesus corrected people. For example, it's in Matthew chapter 23. There the Lord Jesus presents eight harsh woes to the religious leaders of his days. And, and this includes Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Here's one of these woes. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Not some uncleanness, but all uncleanness. And he says in verse 28, Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man, that is a harsh rebuke. And, and listen, this harsh word of correction is just one of the eight woes that we find in this chapter. I encourage you, go read Matthew chapter 23 uh, for homework. You'll be just completely blessed by it. You know, it is just one challenging rebuke after another. And, and in light of this, I want to compare this to the way that Jesus corrected the men who were hypocritically accusing a woman that had been caught in adultery and, and was clearly a setup, and, and Jesus knew that they were trying to test him. And, and while he could have rebuked them as harshly as he rebuked the Pharisees, it's in John chapter 8 where we learn that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, without debate, this was a completely different approach to, to rebuking these people. You know, when we consider the eight explicit woes that Jesus directed towards the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, that was just harsh and, and, and critical. And, and here at the temple, you know, as this woman is brought before him, accused of adultery, he's writing on the ground. What, what did he write? We don't know. We don't know. It could have been the names of the women that they had committed adultery with. You know, it, it could have been just the other sins, you know, of, uh, of the Mosaic Law or the, 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 the Ten Commandments that they knew they were all guilty of. We don't know what he wrote, but rather than using his words and, and just speaking directly like with the woes in, in Matthew 23, he just writes on the ground. And they're all convicted. And, and they all leave. To the, to the woman that was caught in adultery, 
Well, the, the Lord Jesus just declares, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, that's a word of rebuke. Go and sin no more. That, that's, a, that's an accusation that she was sinning. But rather than you know, going into the eight woes or riding on the ground, he just simply says, I'm not going to condemn you here today, but just go and sin no more, right? In this way, the Lord was extending his grace uh, you know, while simultaneously correcting her sin. But then he harshly rebukes Peter, and in front of all the other disciples, after Peter told him that he didn't need to go and die on the cross. It's in Mark chapter 8. There Mark describes the day when Jesus turns and looks at his disciples And then he rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. How would you like to be called Satan by the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, that is harsh. And I have no doubt that, you know, uh, Peter was probably, uh, you know, a, a little bit hurt by this. And, and, and listen, this, this rebuke happened in front of all the other disciples. This wasn't like, hey, let me take you off to the side and do this, this rebuke privately. No, it was in front of the peers. And as we consider these different examples, and there's certainly more that we could look at tonight, but we would just do well to realize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to corrective counsel. And so we shouldn't get it into our minds that, well, there's only really one way, a right way to counsel, and there's only really one way to correct people, and There's a lot of different ways. And with that being the case, it's important for us to remember the instructions that Jude presents in his little epistle where he declares this. He says, On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, there's times when our corrective counsel should be delivered with compassion. There's times when we should deliver that gentle word of correction. But then there's times when correction ought to be presented with a word of warning that instills fear in the heart of the one who's sinning. And it's for this reason that we should follow in the footsteps of Elihu by making sure that our corrective counsel is spirit-led. We need to make sure that we're being led by the Spirit if we feel the need to go and offer corrective counsel. Sometimes the Spirit of God will lead us to, to you know, challenge people with woes and, 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 and with maybe some harsh words. Other times, the Lord just wants us to be gentle and, and respectful. Either way, though, we need to be led by the Spirit. And with all this in mind, I want to consider the way that Elihu corrected Job here in our text tonight. If you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 33. I'm going to begin reading there at verse 8 here. Elihu declares, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure, without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me, yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Now here in these verses we find Elihu, he's presenting now his perspective of the complaint that Job had against the Lord. He's saying, I've heard your defense. I've heard what you've been saying to your three friends. And then then he gives his perspective of what he's been hearing from Job. And in this way, listen, Elihu was giving Job the opportunity to correct that perspective of what he thinks he's been hearing. I, I think Elihu was very wise here in saying, hey, here's what I hear you saying. Am I right? Listen, if, if Elihu didn't do this, then the word of correction that he was about to offer 
would simply devolve into a disagreement about what Job was complaining about, which would then result in an argument about the argument. You ever find yourself in an argument about the argument? You're no longer arguing the thing that you were arguing about. Now you're arguing about what you think the argument is about. That's a wonderful waste of time. I'm sure we've all been there. We've heard someone say something that didn't sound right to us, and so we immediately jumped in to correct without really asking them to clarify their statement so that we might understand what they meant by what they said. Sometimes we just throw out words and we think it makes sense, but then thinking back over it, especially when we hear it thrown back at us, well, here's what you said. It's like, well, that's not what I said. And then we realize, well, those were the words that we said, but that's not what we meant. We ought to be spending a little time saying, hey, here's what I hear you saying. Do I understand this correctly? Because if not, then the other party takes issue with our perspective of their statement, and then this correction turns into an argument about the argument, which is nothing more than just a wonderful waste of time. And and all of this can be avoided by simply restating what we think the other person is saying while simultaneously giving them the chance to correct our perspective of their position. And listen, if the other party says, okay, so you, you have the words that I said, but not the meaning, and here's what I meant. Well, you should let them tell you what they meant by what they said, because who would know but them? If you think that your interpretation of their words is right based you know, over what they say they meant, you're wrong. Let the person who said it explain what they meant by it, and then accept that without arguing about it, because that's just a waste of time. We ought to be ready to accept their correction of our perspective of of the point that they're making. Otherwise, we're just creating a straw man argument, which, again, waste of time. Christian, listen, if the person we're correcting is telling us that we've misunderstood their point of view, then we should give them the opportunity to then explain themselves. And the reason why is because, listen, communication is difficult. I I mean difficult, sorry. Communication is difficult. And it actually takes patience and grace to to really have good communication. Listen, I've been married for 26 years. And I can assure you that communication is much more difficult than most of us even imagine. Good communication is able to bridge the gap between confusion and clarity, while poor communication can turn confusion into conflict. Just depends on how good the communication is. And it's for this reason that we should take time and be patient just to make sure that we're really understanding where people are coming from before we begin to launch into our correction. And, you know, after restating the complaints that Job presented to his friends, Elihu then, having received no correction from Job, goes on then to offer his correction. And I want to consider how he puts it here in Job chapter uh, 33. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 12. Here Elihu declares, look, In this, speaking of, you know, Job's argument, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. If you have the liberty to underline in your Bible, do that. God is greater than man. And if you take notes, then you might include here, God is greater than me. Isn't he? God is greater than man. God is greater than me. And in verse 13, Elihu asks, why do you contend 
with him. For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Here in these verses we find Elihu, he's now challenging Job's perspective about God's perfect plan. He's actually challenging Job's perspective concerning why God was allowing Job to suffer in these sorts of ways or why God might punish him when he doesn't feel like he deserves the punishment. And regardless of the specifics of the situation, Elihu reminds Job here that God is greater than even the best people on the planet. Bring the the best person in the world, a person that is greater than every other human being on the, I mean, we know it's Trump, right? He is the best person ever. I mean, that's what he says. But anyway, so, you know, bring the best person in the world. God's greater. God's better. God's purer. Regardless of Job's perceived integrity, and no matter how faithful he actually was to the Lord, the creator of the universe is still better and greater and more sovereign over his own creation. Therefore, who are we to question God? Who are we to question God? And if we find ourselves in, in, this, you know, uh, in, in, in this line of reasoning that would lead us to think that you know, somehow God got it wrong when it, when it came to how he's dealing with us, well, who would know better? Us? Or God. And so why would we contend with the one who will always be right? We might think that we're always right. But God truly is always right. He is greater than all of us. And therefore, it makes no sense to contend with him. That's why he asks there in verse 13, why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. In other words, he doesn't owe us, he doesn't owe us an explanation. Elihu's asking Job, why are you complaining against the Lord? He doesn't owe you an answer for anything that he chooses to do. And from there, Elihu goes on to remind Job that the Lord is the one who guides us into his will and not the other way around. Uh, I get it. There's a lot of us that are confused about this. We think that somehow we have to convince God to get on our page, and if God would just hear us out, then he'll see how wise we are in in the plans that we have for ourselves. And (laughs) Come on. God is the one who should be guiding us into his will, not the other way around. His will for us is better than our will for us. And I know this because he's greater than us. He can see the future. We can't. And I don't care how many times you call Miss Cleo. She can't help you. We ought to spend our time humbling ourselves before the one who's greater than all of us and look for his instruction as we move forward in faith. Rather than complaining against the Lord when things don't go our way, we do well to remember that the ways of the Lord are always right, and yes, even when the path is painful. 
If you find yourself on a painful path tonight, you might be thinking, well, clearly God's making mistakes up there. What's, what's going on? Listen, even when the path is painful, he's right. And I like the way that the prophet Hosea put it in Hosea chapter 14. It's verse 9 where he declares, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. From this we do well to remember that the ways of the Lord are right. And not just some of the time, but all of the time. The ways of the Lord are always right, and yes, even when the righteous path is painful. Rather than complaining against the Lord, we should learn how to be content as we look to the Lord for the spiritual strength that we need to move forward and pass every test. But this as the goal, I want to consider how Elihu encouraged Job to consider the pain and the suffering that we all endure here on earth. And so with that, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 33. Look with me there beginning at verse 19. Here he declares, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Now I think that that should be cross-stitched into a pillow and, and sold at the Christian bookstore because... That is a reality. Verse 20, that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. I don't know about you, but I think Eli was being a real bummer here. You know, that's, this isn't the kind of Bible study we want to really focus in on tonight, is it? Well, I think it's good to focus on these things, though it's painful to hear. And as we consider the way that Elihu encouraged Job to consider his own suffering, you know, he, he's saying, hey, we're all suffering, buddy. You know, Job is like, you know, my, my life is the worst. You know, I've got, you know, kids who have passed and I've got, you know, uh, sheep that are, you know, stolen and, and, and I've got boils all over my, my body. And, and Elihu's like, yeah, sometimes life is just horrible. And it's true for everyone. You know, some people just kind of have this, you know, my life is the worst complex. And, and don't really give any consideration to how everyone else around you is suffering too in some sort of way. Life is hard at times. And not just for you. But everybody goes through these things. And Elihu's reminding Job that the corruption of the curse eventually affects everyone in verse 19 where he speaks of those suffering from aching bones while lying on their bed and for me i call this good morning you know this alarm goes off and it's like oh yeah i hurt in verse 2 lie who refers to those who no longer have an appetite they no longer have a desire for bread and delicious food and i haven't gotten there yet so i'm somewhere i'm somewhere in between my bones hurt every morning and and, and I'm in the pit, you know, somewhere in there you lose your appetite, I guess. I don't, I don't, I'm probably never going to happen to me. But anyway, in verse 21, Elihu speaks of those whose flesh wastes away from sight. And, and it's possible that he's referring to the way that our skin grows thin the older we get. You might not know that. 
Our skin grows thinner, you know, and easier to, to, to cut open, easier to bruise, and, and this just is the, the nature of the fallen flesh. He refers to the way that, you know, the bones of the elderly begin to stick out as muscle mass begins to disappear. This is the process of deterioration that we're all going to experience unless we're fortunate enough to be raptured up in, in, into heaven. But Elihu's helping Job to remember that everyone suffers in some way, shape, or form. And the reason why is because of the curse that came after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. I think Paul put it succinctly in Romans chapter 5. It's verse 12 where he declares, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Simply put, we all suffer from the stain of original sin resulting in the death of our mortal bodies. And so from the minute you know, we're born, and, uh, you know, we're, we're already in a, in a process of dying. And while it's easy for us to focus on the pain and the suffering that we're enduring here in this world, Elihu encourages Job here to refocus his faith on the solution of our Savior. With this as the focus, I want to consider how he puts it here in our text tonight. So if you would look with me here at Job chapter 33. I want to pick up our study at verse 23 here. Elihu declares, if there is a messenger for uh, for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what it was right and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. Now here in these verses, we find Elihu, he's shifting Job's focus from the trials and the troubles of this world. He's shifting Job's focus from the suffering that he was enduring. And he's focusing Job now on the restoration of redemption that's enjoyed by those who will repent and trust in the messenger who is our mediator. In order to grasp Elihu's point here, I want to first remind you about the complaint that Job made against the Lord. It's actually found back in Job chapter 9. It's there where he declares, You will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Or simply put, Job back in chapter 9 was complaining because in this disagreement between Job and God, he felt like, hey, there's, there's no mediator to, to, to mediate this disagreement. And, and he's complaining because there's no one who was able to serve as a mediator between God and man. Because who, who would you look to? You know, you can't, you can't have another God. There's only one God. And, and if you appeal to another man, well, that man needs a mediator too. So what's the solution as, as you know, Job cries out for, for mediation here? And it's also important to note that the Hebrew word that Job used back in Job chapter 9, it's actually a mediator who serves as a judge. And, and, and so you know, if, if your mediator is a judge and you're guilty, 
guess what the mediator's decision is going to be? You're guilty. Mediation done. So he's looking for a mediator, but, but he's actually crying out for someone to come and judge between him and God. Oh, well, listen. The judge is the last person that a guilty individual wants to see. Don't tell me, or don't ask me how I know that. But if you're guilty and you're crying out for a judge, you're confused. And that's what Job is doing here. Job, Job is guilty. We're all guilty of sinning. And he's asking for a mediator, but he's technically asking for someone to come and judge between him and God. And, and guess what that judge would do? He would say, God is innocent. Job is guilty. Case closed. We don't need a mediator to judge us, but we need a mediator to act as our redeemer so that he might cover our sins with his righteousness and save us from the pit. That's what we need. And so here in our text tonight, we find Elihu. He's actually kind of addressing what Job said back in chapter 9. And now we find him referring to not only a mediator, but also a messenger. It's there in verse 24 where he mentions, you know, the gracious deliverer who would be willing to pay our ransom so that the frailty of our flesh as it begins to pass away can be transformed into uh, you know, the flesh of a youthful child. And listen, he's effectively describing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our messenger. Jesus is our mediator. He is our gracious deliverer. He's the one who came and paid the ransom for our sins so that our fallen flesh can be transformed into a, a resurrected body. Jesus is the mediator that we need. I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. There he informs us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's right, Jesus is our mediator. He is the messenger of the new covenant, which frees us from the condemnation of the law. And listen, those who trust in the messianic ministry of our mediator, we receive the inheritance of a brand new body through the resurrection, by which we then enjoy all the benefits of redemption and forevermore. The, the, the one that Elihu was talking about there during the days of Abraham, he was actually pointing towards our Messiah, the messenger and the mediator who can deliver us from this body of death. And listen, the Lord not only sent us a mediator, but he also draws us to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit so that sinners might receive the redemption of our Redeemer. And I want to consider how Elihu put it here in Job chapter 33. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 29. Here Elihu declares, Behold, God works all these things, twice in fact, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace 
and I will teach you wisdom. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Elihu. He's describing the way that the Lord uh, patiently draws us to himself. And, and he talks about how he does this in two or three different ways. And, and you know, if, if you'll allow me to just engage in a little sanctified speculation here, one way would be through convictions, one would be through afflictions, and another through restrictions. Regardless of the one, two, or three ways that he might draw us, the Lord has a way of getting our attention so that we might wake up and realize that we need a Redeemer. The Lord brings us to that place like Job was at back in chapter 9 where he's like, I wish I had a mediator. And Elihu says, God's going to send a mediator. And I'm here to say, Jesus is that mediator. The problem, though, is that in our fallen flesh, we don't want salvation. In our fallen flesh, we don't desire a relationship with our Creator. And so the Lord uses convictions and afflictions and restrictions to bring us to Him. Think about it. The Lord is the one who created us, and we see in the Scriptures that He's placed His law upon our hearts. Listen, we're not created with a blank slate and then it's all existential experience that helps us to become the people that we are no 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 we are born with innate information including the laws of logic and the law of the lord written upon our hearts to act as a tutor to bring us to the lord he's put the law upon our hearts to act as a teacher so that we might realize our need for his gracious gift of forgiveness Not only that, but the Lord also sent his Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And furthermore, the Lord Jesus said this. It's in John chapter 12, verse 32. The Lord Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. He's talking about the cross. And he's saying, hey, if if I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw everyone to myself. It's through the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection that then the Holy Spirit is sent to draw all people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit then becomes the helper who comes along and convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment so that we might realize our need for Jesus. The Holy Spirit was then sent to draw everyone to our Savior so that every person might use their free will to receive our Redeemer. At the same time, he still gives everyone the free will to reject our Redeemer as well. And listen, those who continue to reject our Redeemer are eventually given over to their own sinful desires. I want to consider how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Beginning at verse 18 where he declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, notice, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew god they did not glorify him as god nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened 
professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As we consider what Paul is saying here, I believe he's letting us know here that there comes a point in time when our creator will give unrepentant unbelievers over to their own sinful desires. It's there in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Why? Well, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, and they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. And in their continual rejection of Jesus Christ, God finally, at some point in time, just says, okay. And he respects that rejection and gives people over to themselves. And it's at that point in time when the unrepentant sinner has seared their conscience as with a hot iron and the Holy Spirit stops convicting their heart, and the Holy Spirit stops drawing them to the cross. And in that state, they are on their way to the pit. With all that being the case, I'm also happy to remind you of what Peter said in Second Peter chapter 3. It's there where he says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So as we consider the fact that there comes a point in time when the Lord will give people over to their own sinful desires, we can rejoice in knowing that he is patient. He is patient and he will continue to draw until the day when he decides that it's a bridge too far. Christian, listen, our, our God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. Our God doesn't want anyone to perish in the pit. He prefers that all would repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. But he's also given us free will to accept or reject our mediator. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit is drawing all people to the cross of Christ, and so I encourage you to help out with that endeavor to follow in the footsteps of Elihu by becoming those born-again believers who are pointing people to our messenger of the new covenant by pointing people to our mediator the redeemer who died in our place let's tell people about this good news that we can be saved from our sins and we can be saved from the condemnation of the law by faith in jesus christ who alone can redeem us from the pit because he alone can cover us with his righteousness